Good morning. It's lovely to be with you again. Uh, my name's Tim. I'm sorry I don't get to join you uh, so often at Snack One, but it's always a pleasure when I have the opportunity. Uh, I'm one of the apprentices here helping Andrew at Snack One and, and ACA. If you haven't met me before, uh, come and talk to me afterwards. Uh, we're going to be continuing in that, that series in Acts, and there's an outline of the talk that you can, you can follow along uh, that you would have received as you came in, so I urge you to do that. As we begin, have a look at this part of God's Word. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending your Son, Jesus, to suffer and die for us on the cross. We thank you that he was raised again as the Lord and King, and, and he rules and reigns even now as the Lord over all. We thank you for giving us your word and we pray that as we study this, this passage this morning that you would again convict us of the great truth of the gospel and we might proclaim it persuasively uh, to those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are returning to the strange world of the book of Acts. In our series, we've been, in, in Acts, we've been following the spread of the gospel as that burst forth from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The early Christians had been proclaiming Christ with an unshakable tenacity, despite the, the ongoing persecution that follows them everywhere. And it's true especially of the Apostle Paul and his companions that are with him. Everywhere Paul goes, proclaiming the gospel, and God is opening up hearts to the message. And everywhere he goes, persecution follows him. But nothing will stop him from proclaiming Christ. Whether he's flogged, or arrested, or imprisoned, or even stoned, nothing can stop him from proclaiming Christ. In fact, it all seems to give him a greater joy in Christ and a greater determination to proclaim him more. And so I wonder if you, like me, sometimes find it a little bit hard to, or even impossible to identify with the man Paul and his companions. They've got this intense determination to proclaim Christ, a a deep joy and, and perseverance, even through suffering. And they have this unshakable conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord. Often we find it so hard, don't we, to share our faith with others. We don't want to be labelled as intolerant or insensitive. Of course, we really want those around us to, to turn to Christ, but especially our family and friends, but sometimes it's just so hard to speak the gospel to those around us. And when the work of evangelism is hard, it's so easy to just want to give up. When persecution comes from, from family members, or from colleagues, or from other, other places, we wonder whether proclaiming the gospel is really worth suffering for at all. After all, is anyone going to listen to the gospel and accept it? Is anyone going to be saved if we proclaim Christ? Well, this passage is a great one this morning because it reminds us of three important truths about gospel proclamation 
Firstly, the gospel is to be proclaimed persuasively. Secondly, gospel proclamation provokes intense persecution, intense opposition. And thirdly, gospel proclamation provokes an intense searching of the scriptures. Well, last week, uh, if you were here, we're in Acts 16 and the Holy Spirit had caused an unexpected change in Paul's journey. Uh, he found himself, for the first time, travelling up into, into Europe. You can see in the top, the top, top left-hand corner of the map. And he went around the, the region of Macedonia, pro- proclaiming the gospel, especially in the city Philippi. And we saw the gospel's power there to change lives. First, it opened up Lydia's heart to turn to Christ. Then it liberated a, a demon-possessed woman. But finally... Uh, God used Paul's unjust arrest to save the Philippian jailer and his family. But in the end, Paul was run out of town. And we pick up the story in Acts 17 as Paul departs from Philippi and continues his journey uh, down uh, through Macedonia. So let's read together Acts chapter 17, verse 1. It'd be great if you can follow along with us. It's on page 1115. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Paul continues down the the Via Ignatia Road, a hundred miles down from Philippi, and he arrives in Thessalonica. Uh, we're not told why Paul and his party uh, decide to go through those other two cities, but we're given a strong indication. It seems that there's no synagogues there. And so, Paul goes to Thessalonica, which has one. But Paul's purpose is perfectly clear. The gospel is to be proclaimed. And so, as was his custom, the moment he arrives, he enters the synagogue and begins to reason with the Jews. What determination! Now he's just been run out of town. He's just been beaten and put in prison by the Jews at Philippi. And now, the moment he walks into a city, he walks back in and continues where he left off. It's just like he writes later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. Though we had, been, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you, as you know, we had boldness. In, in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. We speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul has an unshakable determination to declare the gospel of Christ. He is utterly convinced that Jesus is Lord, and so he labours on proclaiming him, seeking to please God rather than to preserve his own well-being. And his determination comes through in his preaching as well. Luke emphasises that Paul proclaims the gospel persuasively. Have a look again at verse 2. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, 
This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Did you notice all of the verbs that, that, that Luke uses there in those verses? Paul, Paul reasons. He explains. He proves. He proclaims that Jesus is the Christ. This is not merely just teaching what the Bible says. He's trying to convince people. He's trying to persuade them that Jesus is the Lord and that they need to turn back in repentance and faith and put their trust in him. How does he do it? It says he explains and proves. The Greek word explains there is the word uh, to open up. In other words, Paul opens the scriptures with them. He shows them what the Old Testament says about the Christ. He proves to them that the Old Testament says that Christ has to suffer and die in the place of sinful people. And he proves that three days later that Christ had to be raised again from the dead to rule eternally over all God's people forever. Then he proclaims Jesus. He tells them about Jesus Jesus' birth, his life and ministry, his death and resurrection, his ascension and his ongoing reign. And he declares to the Jews, this Jesus, this Jesus of history who died and was raised again, he is the Christ. He perfectly fits the bill. He's the one who died and was raised again. He is the Lord. Therefore, he reasons with them. He persuades them. He urges them to submit to Jesus as the Lord of their lives. But our evangelism, I think, is sometimes so lacking in this area. I wonder if you, like me, have a hesitancy to bring up Jesus uh, in your conversations in the first place. Maybe it's because we're worried what other people are going to think about us. Uh, Maybe that we're afraid that we might offend them, so we keep silent. And when we finally do pluck up the courage to say something about Jesus, does our conversation ever go something like this? Oh, would you like to come to church with me on Sunday? No, thank you. Uh, what, why is that? Oh, I'm sorry, I cannot laugh. I've been so busy. Actually, on Sunday I've got to sleep in. I watch the football, you know, and there's a badminton on tonight. Actually, I'm not really interested in Jesus. I don't want to come. No, thank you. Oh. So it's nice weather today, hey. Where is our boldness? Where is our urgency? Where is our conviction that Jesus, the Jesus of history, is the risen Lord of all? Why don't we have anything to say? The gospel is to be proclaimed. And it is to be proclaimed persuasively, deeply convicted that it is true. What is the response that Paul gets? to his persuasive proclamation of the gospel. See it in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Well, there's a divided response. Uh, As always, some of the Jews believe, and many of the Greeks, uh, including some of the leading women of the city, 
And as in, as in previous chapters, Luke's emphasis here is on God opening up their hearts to receive the gospel. It says that they were joined with Paul and Silas. But literally it's saying that, that they were joined you know, by God to Paul and Silas. As the gospel is being proclaimed, God is continuing to bring people into his kingdom. He's continuing to change their hearts. Paul writes to them again later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says to them, We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Many accept the message, but all is not well. Because point two on your outlines, gospel proclamation provokes intense opposition. Verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. The opposition is not so much to Paul, per se, but to the popularity of, its, of his message, to its reception. You know, there's so many Greeks turning to Jesus, the Jews become jealous. It may not just be that the sheer numbers that are, that are bothering Paul's opponents, but the fact that it's the Gentiles, the Greeks in particular, who are the ones who believe, and the leading people of the city as well. Either way, they're, they're enraged just like their forefathers who decided that Jesus had to go. When he proclaimed to them, they've decided that it's their verdict too. Paul has to go. And so, like any good movie, the plan is a good old-fashioned set-up. Step one, cause an uproar in the city. And step two, blame it on Paul. So what do they do? They, they round up some dubious characters who are loafing around in the marketplace. Wicked men of the rabble, something like that. And in a moment, they have an agitated crowd seeking blood. What a plan. But what an anticlimax when they storm the house and they can't find Paul there. Something like giving a person a, 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 an angry phone call, giving them a piece of your mind. And the phone's answered by an answering machine. Please leave a message. Oh, hi, this is Tim here. I was just coming over to uh, arrest you, um, but you're, you're not there, so I guess I'll come back later. Without Paul in the picture, the intense opposition is, is put instead on these new believers. Jason and, and some of the brothers are, are dragged before the authorities. See in verse 6. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. It's just as well that Paul and his helpers are nowhere to be found, because these are serious charges. They are in big trouble. They're accused of causing trouble throughout the, the Roman Empire. They're accused of, of being revolutionaries. And for all accounts and purposes, it does look like they are revolutionaries, doesn't it? 
now that the Jews have set the city in an uproar and blamed it on them. The charge is profound. And it's also ironic. The great irony, of course, is that it was them who started the uproar in the city. But the irony runs deeper than that. Because there's also truth in the statement as well. Paul's proclamation of the kingship of Jesus has begun to have a world-changing effect. Paul was indeed turning the world upside down as he preached the gospel. A whole new community of believers who submitted to Christ and loved one another was being created all throughout the Roman world. But the most serious charge here is of high treason against Caesar. And such a charge, even if just being accused of that sort of charge, usually resulted in death, just like it did for Jesus. So Caesar was given the title Basilius, or King, but Paul is accused of using it, of Jesus. And indeed, Paul was proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ, the King of Kings, He was calling on people to give their total allegiance to him as the Lord and Saviour of their life. But he wasn't advocating a revolution. Much to the contrary, Christians respect the authorities. They've twisted his words. However, again there is truth in these words. Jesus is the king. And the kingship of Jesus does have unavoidable political implications since his loyal subjects must refuse to give any other ruler or authority the total obedience and submission that is due only to him. Of course, this again has obvious implications for us here in Malaysia. Repeatedly we have opposition to the preaching of Christ. On university campuses, Christian groups can't find rooms. In wider society, it's so hard to open a new church. On the streets, the preaching of the gospel to the Malays is banned if it's uninitiated. So those who will preach Christ boldly in this country will also face intense opposition. But our first allegiance is to Jesus. Jesus, the King of Kings. And we must continue to proclaim him as Lord. Of course, again, it's not an excuse to rebel against the government, and that's not what we're doing. We respect, we submit to the governing authorities. But our first allegiance always must be to Jesus, the King of Kings. Well, we see the the final outcome of this trial uh, in verse 8. People and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Disturbed by these charges, the the leaders just take a sufficient amount of money from from Jason and release him. It's not really clear exactly what the money was for here, uh, but it seems some sort of guarantee of their good behaviour and that Paul and his friends would stop preaching the gospel there any further. The gospel is said very clearly to provoke intense opposition. When the gospel is preached, persecution will inevitably follow. And this persecution will not just be for the proclaimer of the gospel, 
it will be for the believer of the gospel as well. Just like Jason and the other brothers. The genuineness of the gospel preacher and the genuineness of the believer of the gospel will be seen in their ability to persevere in following and proclaiming Christ in the midst of whatever opposition they might face. The Thessalonian church persevered under intense persecution. And so does Paul. Paul also perseveres in his gospel preaching. See in verse 10, the next story. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Paul has just been run out of town again. The Jews have just tried to arrest him again. He's just narrowly escaped with his life again. And so where is Paul? Well, he hasn't packed up and gone back to Jerusalem. He's gone back into the synagogue. I mean, is this guy crazy? Does he just enjoy suffering? Does he just want to get killed by the Jews? What is wrong with Paul? He's just like pins at the bowling alley. No matter how many times you knock them down, they just keep on getting back up again. Is he just a crazy guy? I don't think he's crazy. If if you're deeply convinced about something, then you will do things that, that other people don't normally do. Think for a moment about what a guy will do when they fall in love with someone, the perfect girl. He'll start doing all sorts of crazy things. Uh, he'll start washing the dishes. Uh, he'll start enjoying shopping. He might even take an interest in romantic comedies because he is convinced that she is the one. He will do whatever it takes. But Paul is convinced of something much more important, isn't he? He's convinced of the truth of the gospel. And so he will persevere in proclaiming Christ no matter, no matter what happens. Nothing will shape his conviction that Jesus is Lord. Friends, are we convinced of the truth of the gospel? Are we so convinced that we will persevere in persuasively proclaiming that gospel, even when it provokes intense opposition against us. Thankfully, gospel proclamation will not always attract opposition. At least in Berea, the the situation was a little bit different. Berea was a small town, as you can see on the map, over to the left a bit more. And it's kind of off the beaten track. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, But it does have a synagogue. Uh, So it's the perfect place for Paul to continue his ministry. And here in in Berea, the gospel provokes something different. The gospel provokes an intense searching into the scriptures. See in verse uh, verse 2. Sorry, verse 11. Uh, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily 
to say if these things were so. The Bereans are commended as noble people. They're commended for two reasons. Firstly, their, their openness. They, they won't let any, any prejudice uh, stop them from giving Paul a fair hearing. They are eager to listen because they want to know what God has to say to them. But secondly, they're, they're diligent. They, they don't just accept what Paul says. They're not, they're not gullible people. Like if you told them they'd taken a word out of the dictionary or something like that. But rather, they examine the scriptures. And the word here is like examining evidence in a court. They want to find out if these things are true. It's quite clear that Luke puts this response in contrast to the Jews in Thessalonica to be a model response for us. What is your response when you hear gospel preaching? Like the Bereans, do you go home after church and and study what the passage was. Study it every day for the rest of the week just to check that what the preacher said was true. Or do you just listen and if it sounds sort of relevant and interesting uh, then you might do what it says. In our day and age we're tempted to listen based on our emotions. We're often rather like the Thessalonians rather than like the Bereans. We let our emotions drive our response rather than stopping and thinking about what we have been told. In other words, often we are lazy. Sometimes we prefer to lie in a hospital bed and let the food be put in through a drip than to actually chew the scriptures for ourselves. My friends, this is one of the big reasons why many churches in Malaysia are in such a mess with false teaching. We've closed our Bibles we're not listening to what God has to say. I hope that right now, that's not you. I hope that you have your Bible open and you are checking everything that I am saying and you will go home and check it further to make sure whether what I am saying is what God is saying. If it's not, don't listen to me. Okay? Don't accept everything that you hear immediately. Don't, but don't reject everything that you hear immediately either. Read the scriptures. Work it out for yourself. And if you are convinced of the truth, then believe it and change your life. So that's what the Bereans did as well. Verse 12. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. Because the Bereans were open, because they, they tested Paul's words against what the scripture says, when they saw Paul's words were true, they believed. Many, many of them believed. For the Bereans, the gospel provoked an intense searching into the scriptures and God graciously gave them faith in Jesus and brought them forgiven and brought them into his kingdom. If you are a non-Christian here amongst us this morning, it's so great that you are with us. We hope you are very, feel very warmly welcome with us. I want to say it's so great that you, like the Bereans, are searching into the truth. You want to find out what is true. There is nobility in that. 
let me encourage you to search the scriptures to find out whether what you are hearing here in church might possibly be true. And if you are convinced, then believe. Do it. Follow us. But sadly, Luke reminds us that not everyone will believe. Because conversion is not just dependent on the persuasive proclamation of the Gospels. It depends on God, ultimately, to open up people's hearts. Just like at Thessalonica, many actually reject the Gospel as well at Berea. And it didn't take long for the Bereans to learn that Gospel proclamation, believing the Gospel, will cause them opposition in their life as well. Read on in verse 13. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. so opposed were the Thessalonians to the preaching of the gospel that they even go you know, another hundred miles to Berea as well. But these events show that the Bereans' deep conviction in the truth of the scriptures that have resulted from their careful study of the scriptures. See, when trouble comes to them, they put their lives on the line to protect Paul their new brother, their, new, their father in the faith. And what about for us? Today we have seen Paul proclaiming the provocative gospel. We've seen Paul preaching with conviction, persuading people that Jesus is the Christ. For some, that gospel proclamation provoked intense opposition. For others, it provoked an intense searching into the scriptures to see if it might be true. And by God's grace, for many, he provoked them to believe and be joined with the forgiven people of God. We're not all meant to be like Paul, who was commissioned especially by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. We've all been given different gifts, different circumstances, different opportunities in life to proclaim Jesus. We're not all going to be missionaries that go to Europe or pastors of churches. But we are all disciples of Jesus Christ called to make disciples of all nations. And we are all expected to share the same commitment to Jesus, the same determination to persuade others to turn to him, the same willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel and the same joyful perseverance whatever difficulties may come our way. This passage leaves us with three challenges to proclaim this provocative gospel. Firstly, we are to proclaim persuasively. We're not to be half-hearted in our proclamation of the gospel. It is so easy to worry about what others will think about us. It is so easy to be afraid of offending others or to be labelled as intolerant. 
but how can we sit, sit happily by as people walk on that long and wide road to hell? If we are convinced of the truth of the gospel, how can we be silent? How can we not seek to persuade others to turn to Jesus and be saved? If we are truly convinced of the truth of the gospel, it should move us to throw aside our comforts, our reputation, our petty ambitions, and to persuade others to follow him too. Are you willing to persuasively proclaim Jesus? If you will do that, you need the second one. We are to prepare for persecution. We've seen today that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, that persecution will accompany it. For there will always be those who will reject the gospel and persecute those who preach it. As preachers of the gospel, we have to be prepared to suffer. We must be prepared for the reality that we may be rejected by our family members. We may be mistreated by our boss. We may be victims of double standards or the object of ridicule of our friends. We may even be imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. Who knows? Paul wrote later uh, to the Thessalonians saying, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, We sent Timothy, our brother, to exhort you in the faith that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Persecution is a normal part of the Christian life. We are called to proclaim this provocative gospel and we must be willing to suffer for it. Are you willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Finally, we must be willing to persevere in proclaiming this gospel. Some will reject the message. Some will investigate it further. Others will believe God willing. But whether the gospel is eagerly accepted or vehemently opposed, we must persevere proclaiming it. Uh, John Chapman, who is a, a, a famous evangelist in Australia, has been doing it most of his life. He's famous for the words, the first 50 years are the hardest. It's older than 50, no, he's about 80. Please say the second 50 is hard too. <laughs> we have to just keep on going. If you are here today as a non-Christian, we are glad that you've joined us. What, what Paul proclaimed to his hearers, we proclaim to you as well. Jesus, the Jesus of history, is the Christ. He is the one who has died to save us from our sins. He is the one who has raised back to life as the Lord of all. And if we turn back to him as our Lord and as our Saviour, we will be forgiven. We will be given a place in his eternal kingdom. I urge you to be like the Bereans. Probe the scriptures. 
say if they see a star, and if they are, they believe. But of course, that's what we should all be doing. We should all be studying the scriptures regularly to see if they see a star, to be open to listen and ready to change. Friends, we are called to proclaim this provocative gospel. And may we continue to boldly and lovingly persuade others, being prepared for persecution and persevering whatever response we receive. May it be that one day God will answer our prayers for this great country, that it too may be turned upside down by the saving news of the gospel. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus did die and he did, he was raised again in fulfilment of all your scriptures. We thank you for the example we have before us of Paul and his persuasive proclamation, his willingness to suffer and his perseverance. We thank you for the example of the Bereans in, in studying your scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us when we are filled with fear or, or worry about proclaiming this gospel. We pray that you would give us a deep conviction that this gospel is true. And we pray that flowing from this, you would enable us to proclaim Christ as the Lord. We pray for this country, Malaysia. We pray that you would indeed save many, many people through the preaching of this gospel. People of all, all parts of society. We pray that you would do these things for the sake of Jesus. That he would indeed be honoured as the King of Kings, the King over all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.